This week on the Holy Bold Podcast, we are going to conclude our discussion on prevenient grace. Uh, we're going to talk about why John 12, 32, uh, Romans 2, 4, and Titus 11 do not support the doctrine of prevenient grace. And I will apologize for the most recent gap in our regularly scheduled programming. So thank you very much for tuning in. My name is TJ Lucasen, and this is the Holy Bold Podcast. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I should begin with an apology. Uh, so I missed yet another week. Uh, so I, I think I mentioned this on a recent episode. I work at a school, and uh, so the end of the year is just kind of crazy busy. So uh, that just is the way that it is, and uh, I've had a lot of busy evenings over the last few weeks, and so that caused me to miss two weeks ago, and then I missed this week. Uh, but I think things are sort of beginning to wind down and return to general easiness uh and then i have summer and i won't really have to work i'm gonna do some like video editing and stuff like that during the summer but i won't have a nine to five so i might even try to produce some extra content during the summer maybe get maybe get a few more uh um extra episodes out kind of in between our normal episodes one thing that i'm considering and if you listen to this and uh would be interested in such a thing i'm considering doing uh an extra episode each week or maybe every other week where i kind of slowly work my way through the book of deuteronomy uh just because i think the book of deuteronomy is uh woefully uh neglected uh, because I, I just think it is such a fantastic book where the law of God is kind of restated for the nation of Israel. And in that, we understand, we learn, we see God's righteousness on display in his word. Um, and I just think we could really use that today. So that's something I'm considering doing. And maybe this summer when I've got some more time uh, on my hands, I might try to uh, engage in something like that. But again, sorry for missing last week. Uh, we are going to pick up where we left off uh, last time. So if you remember, uh, we've been over the last couple episodes discussing the doctrine of prevenient grace. Um, and so if you want to hear more about just kind of a basic definition of prevenient grace, you can go back to two episode, episodes ago, that was uh, episode 15, and in that I talked a little more uh, about just kind of a basic definition, but to give it to you in a nutshell right now, in case this is your first episode and you haven't heard the other two, uh, essentially the doctrine of prevenient grace as held to by the uh, theological descendants of Jacob Arminius uh, is the doctrine that uh, through the atoning work of Christ, what Christ provided uh, begins with prevenient, meaning before. It is a grace that comes before. 
And essentially the idea is that it is an, a, a grace that enables all people. It makes all people capable of turning to God. Uh, and so we've been responding to a, a video discussing this doctrine by Dr. W. Brian Shelton. Now, there is a, a link to that video in the description. Uh, I would encourage you to just watch the whole thing. Uh, he will give you, you know, the Arminian view on the doctrine because it's very easy for us, uh, you know, to caricature other people's beliefs and not to state them accurately. And so that's why I'm responding to a video rather rather than just kind of giving you my own summary, uh, because I think it's useful for us to actually respond to what other people have to say, rather than just stating it ourselves, because then we can be at least more sure that we're responding to what they actually mean. Um, so the first week we talked a little bit about uh, the anthropology that is put forward by the doctrine of prevenient grace. That was episode 15. Uh, and I just talked about how Provenient grace presents an anthropology or a doctrine of mankind that I think is thoroughly rejected by scripture. Uh, and then we talked about uh, in the next episode, episode 16. So this would have been two weeks ago. Uh, Wesley, John Wesley, who was is has been kind of the, the key Arminian theologian throughout history since the Reformation. You know, there's been a few big prominent Arminian theologians, and most people would probably agree that Wesley is the most prominent among them. Um, he founded the Methodist Church, uh, you know, which is, I think, today the United Methodist Church is, I think, the second largest denomination, Christian denomination in the United States. So very influential. Um, and according to Dr. W. Brian Shelton, who is the guy in the video that we've been rebutting. Uh, he says that John Wesley had four kind of key verses that he would use to support the doctrine of prevenient grace. And so last time, not last week, two weeks ago, but in the last episode, well, we discussed uh, the first of those verses. Uh, and so that was John 1, 9. Uh, I would encourage you to go listen to that. Um because I think we got a uh, we got a good shot kind of at discussing the inconsistency of Arminian hermeneutics, which is biblical interpretation. I don't think that you can hold to Arminian uh, a, an Arminian system of theology uh, and have a consistent hermeneutic that you can apply equally in all instances, because there are going to be certain texts where you want to uh, uh, interpret it one way and then you get to another text. And if you apply the same interpretive methods in the other text, you suddenly are going to be a universalist. Uh, and that is kind of the the and that's why I think you see a lot of uh, groups or denominations that begin as Arminian trend towards uh, universalism. So you can find many Methodists today who have kind of fallen off the cliff into universalism. So uh, this is just kind of the way that things go. Uh, but in this episode, what I want to do, uh, this is episode 17, and we're going to look at the other three verses that John Wesley uh, points to as example verses that can support the doctrine of prevenient grace. And so I do have, I, I keep forgetting to do this, but I do have a thesis for this episode. Uh, and so 
I, I think I said in like one of the first episodes that I would try to have a thesis every week just because I think it's really helpful to kind of put forward at the beginning. Here is the key thing that I am arguing in this episode. I just think it helps to add some clarity to uh, what we're discussing. And so I remembered this time. And so I'm going to give you my thesis. And this, I think, covers all three of these verses that we're going to look at. So the, the thesis is this. Uh, here it is. While certain verses, verses of scripture is what I'm referring to there, while certain verses of scripture may plausibly support the doctrine of prevenient grace when divorced from the context of scripture, none do when understood in light of the whole counsel of God. So what I mean by that is essentially just this. There are lots of verses that if you cherry pick a verse out of its context, you can make it definitely sound like it supports the doctrine of prevenient grace. And I would argue that that is uh, what's going on with these various verses that we're going to look at. But uh, converse to that, I would say that if you actually look at those verses in the context, not like uh, of their immediate context, but then also uh, when you hold them to the light of all of the rest of scripture, there is no verse in the Bible that actually teaches prevenient grace uh, in its context when understood correctly. Uh, so that is my thesis, and I think it applies to each of the verses that we are going to look at uh, in this episode. So if you are uh, just listening, I would encourage you to, if you can, get out your Bible because I'm going to be looking at some passages. If you're watching on YouTube, hello. Thank you. Uh, you're going to see the verses on screen. So uh, hopefully that's helpful for you. Uh, and you will see if you're watching on YouTube, uh, I've highlighted the key verses that Wesley refers to. And then in some instances, I've highlighted surrounding verses uh, in order to show you why the context may not support the Arminian uh, doctrine being put forward here. And speaking of doctrine, prevenient grace is a dubious doctrine and so we are going to jump into our dubious doctrines segment okay thank you all for uh joining and i'm gonna pull up my bible here so that you all can see it so uh, as I mentioned, there are three more verses that I want to look at in order to uh, understand the Arminian position and then to uh, hopefully show you why these these particular passages just do not support the Arminian position. Uh, so the first one, and I'm not going to play the clip of the video this time from Dr. W. Brian Shelton, uh, because what he does essentially is he just... Um, he paraphrases each of these verses, and then he goes on to talk about a few other things that I think we've mostly already touched on, so we're not going to do the rest of the video. Um, but he just paraphrases each one of these, and that's maybe the biggest bummer to me about the video, is just that rather than, you know, diving into each one of these verses and showing us their interpretation, showing us how they understand the verse, Dr. Shelton just uh, just paraphrases each one, and then it moves on. So um, that's a bummer. I really wish that he would have kind of walked through each one, and I suppose I could probably find a video of uh, Arminian pastors or theologians um, doing deeper studies of each of these, and maybe we'll do that in the future. Uh, but I think it's useful just kind of to survey them 
and to try to uh, look at them in their context. And so the first one is John chapter 12, verse 32. So if you'll remember, the the first one that we looked at in the, the last episode was actually John 1, 9. So we see another one here coming from the book of John, which I just think is kind of interesting because if I had to choose one gospel that most strongly supports the Calvinistic, you know, understanding of of salvation, the book of John would be it. Certainly, uh, I think, you know, John tends to be the gospel where uh, you get the most sort of theological description or theological insight to what's going on. So John will, you know, tell us a story about Jesus and then he will give kind of a theological interpretation of it. And and sometimes he'll point back to the Old Testament or sometimes he'll just tell us flat out. So we saw that in John chapter one, where rather than just telling the story of the birth of Jesus, he gives us a theological view of the birth of Jesus. And he says, look, this is the 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 word is being made flesh and coming to dwell among us. You know, that's that's it's describing the same thing as, you know, Matthew chapter one in the, the birth of Christ. Uh, but it's actually, you know, it's giving it to us from a theological perspective. Uh, and so the book of John does that a lot. And what's funny to me is just that I think it is by far the most overtly uh, Calvinistic gospel. And I don't like to say it that way just because obviously the Bible is the Bible and Calvin was just saying what was contained in Scripture. I think he faithfully exegeted Scripture uh, on these points. Uh, So I don't like to say that a book of the Bible is Calvinistic, but I think the book of John in particular highlights the sovereignty of God in salvation more probably than any of the other Gospels. And so it's funny to me that two of the key verses that John Wesley would point to to say, look, uh, provenient grace is a real thing, that the, the fact that he would say two verses are pulled from the book of John uh, is interesting to me. And I think it just shows like there's maybe some blind spots here. And I will say John Wesley was, I would probably, I, I don't think this is in any way, uh, it's, this shouldn't surprise anyone, but I would say John Wesley is far, was a far more productive and uh, uh, helpful Christian than I have been. You know, uh, John Wesley is a giant in the faith. I think it was about John Wesley. Um, I don't want to tell this story wrong, but I think it was about John Wesley and uh, George Whitfield. They were both evangelists. They were both, you know, traveling preachers. And somebody asked, I believe it was Whitfield at one point, he asked him, do you think we will see Wesley in heaven? You know, because the question was essentially like, do you think Arminians are going to go to heaven? And Whitfield said, uh, no, we're not going to see Wesley in heaven, but that's only because he's going to be so much closer to the throne than we are, than I am. You know, so there's this humility that Whitfield exemplifies there by saying, like, look, of course, Wesley is a brother in Christ. Uh, and he was, you know, and maybe it was in jest, but I think I think there was genuine humility there. And I want to emulate that. Yeah, I, I have no illusions that I am uh, even approaching the the usefulness to God that John Wesley had. And I, I know that's by the grace of God. So Wesley wouldn't brag about it either. Um, but I just don't want to in any way come across as though I'm saying, oh, stupid Wesley. I'm so much smarter than him. But 
I do have a disagreement with him about this particular doctrine, and so I just want to look at the verses that he holds up uh, to support the doctrine. So all of that uh, introduction to get to the first of the three verses that we're going to look at in this episode. Uh, so as I said, it's John twelve thirty two. I will read it to you from the ESV. It's highlighted here on screen. If you're watching on YouTube, it says this. And I, sorry, I'm going to pause again. This is Jesus speaking. So there's a little bit of context for you. Uh, Jesus is speaking and he says this. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So on the surface, like I said, a verse like this would be very easy to find it, you know, snag it, remove it from its context hold it up and say, look at what this is saying. Jesus is saying that he is going to draw everyone, all people to himself. Uh, so I think it, it's easy to understand why Wesley would, would point to this verse because it, it, it seems to suggest when you read it all by its lonesome, uh, that God is actively trying to draw every person and thus, the only inhibiting factor for a person coming to Christ is their own free choice to reject God. Uh, but God himself is actively uh, trying and exerting his will to draw them inward. And so I think there, there's a few things that I want to look at uh, on this verse. And I'm going to try to go through each of these verses relatively quickly. I'm not going to go as long on any one of these as I did on John 1, 9. Um just because I think John 1, 9, uh, I think I got to sort of show you an example sort of of the inconsistency of Arminian hermeneutics or Arminian biblical interpretation when we discuss John 1, 9. And so I don't think I need to spend as much time on each of these ones. Um, but there are a few things I want to look at for this particular verse. So the first one is the word draw. Um, I think we need to understand this word draw when uh, in the context of the book of John, because the book of John uses this term draw uh, multiple times. And uh, so let me actually pull up. I'm going to pull up a word study here for this Greek word. I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek word because that is not a language that I can read. Uh, so. You can see here that this this particular Greek word is used six times uh, in the New Testament, and five of those are in the Gospel of John. So uh, it is a word that John uses five times and is only used one other time in the uh, New Testament. So that is, I think, important because it shows us that this is something that John uh, uses uniquely in comparison to the other uh, 28 books of the New Testament. Uh, so um, look at this. So we see John 644 is the other place. So the, the word itself, uh, the word draw is, let me see if I can, uh, I will try to pronounce it. It's Helkio, Helkio. Uh, that's probably a terrible pronunciation, but that word Helkio in the Greek is translated uh, five times in the gospel of John. And one, two of them are translated as the word hall. Uh, two of them are translated as the word draw. 
and one of them is translated as the word drew, so just the past tense of the word draw. Uh, and then the other one is from the book of Acts, and it's translated as dragged. And so there's something that is common to to all the uses of this this particular Greek word in the New Testament, and that is that uh, this Greek word is an effective word, as in it is describing something that is happening, and and when it's happening, uh, it is essentially I think we could say irresistible. Um, so so let's look at John six forty four. Um, we see here again, this is a passage where Jesus himself is, is speaking and he's speaking about God, the father. And he says this, he says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So we see this word draw used and, and what is it referring to? It's referring to the father drawing people to him. And what will happen to those people? The, the father is drawing them and they will be, Jesus promises, Jesus tells us, he gives us his word that they will be raised up on the last day. That is uh, a highly important uh, thing for us to understand because here in John twelve thirty two, when Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He's using that same word. He, he's talking about an effective drawing. Another time when, when this word draw is used is, um, uh, let's see in John eighteen ten it says, then Simon Peter having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. So that word drew there again, it's something that is, uh, there is a, an, an initiator, someone who is doing something. And there is something that is simply on the receiving end. The sword gets drawn. The sword doesn't decide when to be drawn. The sword cannot choose not to be drawn. The sword is simply drawn. And then we see again uh, in John 21, verses 6 and 11, the same word is translated as hauled. And what we see is that at first, so in John 21, 6, uh, Jesus comes and he, he tells them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some referring to fish. They're out fishing. This is after the, the resurrection in Galilee. And so Jesus arrives and he tells them, cast the net on the other side of the boat. You'll find some fish. So they cast it and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So there's this word haul. And even though in this instance, it's saying they were not able to haul it in. It's talking about this effective thing that they're doing where they are striving to draw something in to haul it in. Uh, and then we see just a few verses later. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, one fish, 153 of them. So what we see here is that the, this term draw is something that that is an effectual term. It is in the Gospel of John when it's referring to salvation. Now, a net of fish, uh, you know, maybe an illusion or a metaphor for salvation. But especially in the instances where it's referring to people being saved, it is an effectual term. And so when we look back at John twelve thirty two, where Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. We want to read that using that same 
understanding of the word draw that we get from John 6, 44. And in John 6, 44, what we see is that those who the father draws will be raised up on the last day. So to put it simply, those who are drawn will be glorified. They will be saved. They will be resurrected. And so when we see John 12, 32, when it talks about drawing all people to himself, then I think the question that we have to ask is, well, what does he mean by all? Because we know, and Arminians also would, would agree with us, that not all people will be saved. So if if the term draw is an effective term, a term that describes uh, something that is happening, that God is executing, and therefore is unthwartable, we might say, it cannot be thwarted, then what we know is that the all here must not refer to all people without exception, but instead refers to all people without distinction. It is referring to all types of people. And so um, that I think is a really important thing. If we understand the word draw there and the way that John uses the word draw, we know that here Jesus is talking about salvation being effected in the lives of his people. And if that's the case, then obviously the this cannot be referring to all people uh, without exception. But in, rather than that, it is referring to all people without distinction. And I will stop uh, there in terms of talking about that because there's another verse we're going to look at where I think we're going to see that even more um, clearly. But um, one thing that I want to uh, look at is uh, uh, kind of a second thing about this particular verse is that uniquely uh, you don't see this for a lot of other you know passages of scripture or words of Jesus but the very next verse tells us uh, it, it kind of gives us a purpose statement for why Jesus said what he said in verse 32 so I'm going to read to you verses 32 and 33 and I think it will help to frame for us what Jesus is actually discussing in this particular passage. So here's the two verses together. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then there the quote ends, and verse 33 is John's narration. And he says this, He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So John here points to the fact that that Jesus in this passage was not necessarily uh, meaning to address the the extent of the atonement, like who all would be included in the atonement, but instead he was addressing the means of the atonement, his death, his being lifted up from the earth on a cross. He was pointing forward to describe here is how the atonement will happen. I'm going to be lifted up from the earth and in being lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. But he, according to this uh, purpose statement in verse 33, this passage is less about the extent of the atonement and more about the the means of the atonement, how Jesus brought the atonement uh, about. But then I think maybe the strongest reason why we could say this particular passage is not about or, or, or does not support the doctrine of prevenient grace is it comes just a few verses later. So again, uh, 
most Bible teachers will tell you, you know, the most important thing to understanding the Bible or to, uh, you know, talking about the Bible is context, context, context. So if you want to know what a, uh, a verse means, you need to understand that verse in its larger context or the context of the the paragraph or the context of the chapter or the context of the book. Uh, but we have to know what is going on in the context that we are looking at. And so what's very interesting to me is that if you keep reading just a few more verses, so we the key verse here that we're looking at is verse 32. If you keep reading down to verse 36, you will see that that Jesus or sorry, John, uh, again, we get one of these kind of theological descriptions of what's going on here. John tells us uh, he uses the Old Testament to describe for us uh, what is going on here. He, he kind of gives us some theological insight to this uh, story that he just told. So I'm just going to actually read to you um, a little bit more. So I'm going to start at verse 32, and then I'm going to read down to the end of verse 40, because I think when we see these things in context with each other, it makes it really hard to to agree with the idea that this passage is meant to support the doctrine of prevenient grace. So again, picking up at verse 32, it says this, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has delivered, or sorry, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. That, that passage is as far from the doctrine of provenient grace as as I could possibly imagine. This passage specifically tells us that God has blinded eyes and hardened hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So again, what is the doctrine of prevenient grace? The doctrine of prevenient grace is that God makes all people able to, of their own free will, turn to Christ. What does the book of Isaiah say? The book of Isaiah prophesying about these people in, in the book of John, and I would argue more than just these particular people in the book of John, but uh, many people, the book of Isaiah says, 
He, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So this passage, it, I would argue it's impossible to reconcile with the doctrine of prevenient grace. This passage tells us very clearly that God does not give all people the ability to believe. God does not uh, give everyone the inherent capability to see, comprehend, accept, and believe in Christ. But instead, God, some people, as we see in the book of Romans, especially chapter 9, some people God has made for dishonorable purpose. And some he has made for honorable purpose. And, and who are we to answer back to God about how or why he has made certain people the way that he has made them? But it is abundantly clear that this is what God has done. Now, some people will not accept it, but, but it is not difficult or uh, vague in the scriptures. Instead, it is abundantly clear. So. Uh, given that that passage follows directly on the heels of verse 32 uh, and and is a theological reflection on verse 32 and tells us why some of these people that Jesus is speaking to directly, why they don't believe, I, I think it is uh, irreconcilable to say that this verse, uh, verse 32, supports the doctrine of prevenient grace. So from there, we will move on to the next one, which is Romans 2, 4. Oh, let me type better. There we go. Romans 2, 4. So let me read that one to you. Uh, and again, this is uh, another verse that John Wesley says is uh, or said he has passed many years uh, hence, but he uh he said that this passage is one of the key passages to support the doctrine of prevenient grace. So uh, Romans 2, 4 says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So there's a few different things that I think uh, come up when we when we look at this passage. Um, but the first thing I want to look at, again, is the context of of what is being discussed, especially in this portion of the book of Romans. Um, so I think most people would agree the book of Romans is kind of especially the first uh, nine or ten chapters are a a thorough sort of exposition, a theological description of salvation and the gospel and what God is doing and how God is bringing about salvation. And, and in that sort of 10 chapter uh, discussion that, that Paul gives in, in his letter to the Romans, he begins the first few chapters, uh, chapters one to three, essentially building God's case against mankind. Um, he he is walking through and showing us so that we understand beyond the shadow of a doubt the the case that God has against us, our our utter sinfulness, our our rebellion. Thus, he kind of accomplishes two things. He he justifies the wrath of God and shows why we deserve it. 
But then also, uh, in addition to justifying God's wrath, he shows us the, the necessity of the gospel. Like what, why we need the gospel of Jesus Christ, because apart from the, the gospel of God's grace, we cannot be saved. And, and that I think is what the, the apostle Paul is setting up here in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And so I think there's a few different passages we could look at, uh, in order to substantiate that claim that, that Jesus or that Paul is building God's case against mankind. Excuse me. And uh, the first passage that I would look at is here at the end of chapter one. So just uh, like five verses before the verse that we're looking at, Romans 2, 4. Uh, Romans one thirty two uh, talks about, uh, well, it's, it's kind of concluding this passage that is describing the, the sinfulness of mankind. Uh, so I'll actually go back uh, to verse 29. And this is describing uh, mankind, essentially. And it says this, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then verse 32 Though they know God's decree, righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So we see already, even in the very first chapter of the book of Romans, Paul is is displaying, he's saying, look, people who do such things deserve to die. This is the the uh, judgment against mankind for our rebellion. We deserve to die. And then you can scroll down a little bit further. Uh, this this discussion of man's sinfulness uh, transitions at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, into talking about uh, sort of hypocrisy and how even though so many of us are, uh, we, we will criticize other people for these sorts of sin, we do the same things ourselves. So for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, it says in verse one, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So, so he transitions into this, this, this description of uh, hypocritical natures, uh, pointing to this reality that people you know, we judge others for, for doing these sins while we ourselves practice them. And then we see down in verse 12 of chapter two, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So, so those who are under the law will be judged and those who are not under the law will also be judged. There is no one who can escape the judgment of God. We are all, even if we don't have the law, we are all under the judgment of God. And then we see very clearly spelled out in chapter three, uh, Paul is kind of concluding his case, describing the the unrighteousness, the wickedness of man. And in verses 10 and 11, he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
And then one of the passages that we probably all have memorized, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we, we see this, this theme throughout the first three chapters of the book of Romans that uh, Paul is, is building God's case against mankind. He, he is showing us our utter sinfulness, our utter uh, rebellion, and, and God's perfect right to exercise his wrath against us. So we see that in verse 5. So right after verse 4, the one that John Wesley points to, verse 5 says, but, but so uh, I'll, I'll read both verses together. Uh, verse four says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So we see God is uh, describing through the apostle Paul, the reality of what's going on here, which is that. Uh, We are storing up wrath for ourselves because why we all as the human race are rejecting God's kindness, which is meant to lead us to repentance. And and that phrase there uh, meant to lead us to repentance. That is the the passage or the, the portion that the Arminian would point to and say, look, God, again, here in this passage is he is trying to draw us to repentance uh, he, he is being kind to us so that we would repent, but look, we don't do it. And, and so it, it's our own free will that prevents our salvation, not God's sovereign election of some and rejection of others. And so, uh, this is the port, the point that they kind of point to when they say, look, uh, God is, is trying to save people, but uh, many people are just kind of uh, rejecting the salvation that God wants to give them. And and I would say uh, that that is kind of missing the point of this, this whole, this whole section chapters one through three, I would argue that the, the main point that, that Paul is, is making here in these early chapters of the book of Romans is that, Uh, Paul is he's laying out God's case against us. And I would I would argue that verse four of chapter two functions as a a vindication of the wrath of God, Uh, though God has been kind and patient with mankind, which which ought to have brought about our repentance. We have rejected God. And we have worshiped the creature rather than the creator, which is what Romans one says. And and so uh, this passage is not saying that, look, we all have the ability to turn to God, but instead it's saying, look, God has been kind to everyone. God has been patient with, with all people and, and all people have rejected him. And because of that, we are storing up wrath for ourselves. And the only solution to that wrath is Jesus Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. The, this is what is being communicated here. It is pointing to the, the uh, widespread universal sinfulness of mankind. It is not 
communicating that that God is is trying to draw people to himself and and failing at it. You know, he's trying really hard. He's being as kind as he can in order to lead people to repentance. No, this is describing the the general kindness and general patience that God shows toward all mankind and displaying the fact that all mankind has rejected that no one does what is good no one seeks god no not one all of us reject god's will reject god's kindness reject god's patience and because of that we are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath this i think is what romans 2 4 is discussing the point of it is not you know that that God is really trying hard to save us by being super kind. And, you know, we just have to kind of choose the right direction. And so I think, again, we, we see an instance where if Wesley had, uh, you know, put this verse in its context and understood it in the greater structure of what's going on here, I think I don't think he would have held this verse up as uh, a a a justifying verse for Arminianism or the doctrine of prevenient grace. Um, so I'm going to move on from that one. I don't want to, uh, to belabor that point too much. So we're going to move on to the, the third one in the last verse for this episode. And that is Titus two 11, Titus two 11. So if you're watching on YouTube, you can see I've got it highlighted here in green. And I do want to say, as we jump into this last verse, I think uh, out of all of them, this is the one that that probably uh, is the most plausible. You know, uh, again, I don't think it it does actually, when understood correctly, support the doctrine of prevenient grace. But I think it is it is the most plausible of the three verses uh, in in supporting that doctrine. So the verse itself says this, this is, uh, so it's the book of Titus. It is the apostle Paul writing to Titus. Uh, this is one of the pastoral epistles. Paul is writing to, uh, Titus and it's often grouped with, uh, first and second Timothy, uh, because these are letters that, that Paul, the apostle, you know, writes to these younger pastors to, to help them and to guide them as they seek to, to lead local churches. And so Paul is speaking to Titus here and he says this for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And I'm going to go on because I think if you understand if you understand this all as one sentence, it's going to, uh, it's going to be a detriment to reading this like John Wesley reads it. So I'm just going to go on and read all the way to the end of verse 14, and then we will discuss it. So I'm going to start over at verse 11 for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So, 
Wesley and Arminians would like us to focus on verse 11, which says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. They would like us very much, I think, to kind of stop reading there at the end of verse 11, because just that verse taken by itself really seems to suggest that the salvation that Jesus brought is again for all people. And here, uh, the word all is very important. Uh, The way we understand the word all, you know, you hear people say sometimes all means all. Well, there are, uh, I didn't didn't make a list, but there are clear passages in other places of scripture where the word all definitely does not mean all people without exception, you know. Uh, So that is a a very weak hermeneutic, uh, but we do need to understand what the word all means in this uh, particular passage. Uh, So the Arminian interpretation of this passage is that verse 11 is saying that God, uh, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people without exception. So, so the salvation that was brought is for everyone. Now, the Arminians would not say that every single person, you know, accepts that salvation, but they would say that it is a available uh, and open and equally accessible to every single person without exception. And I would argue, uh, as I said in the thesis of this episode, that that interpretation is uh, plausible in isolation, if you just look at this verse by itself. But if you look at this verse uh, in the context of, of Scripture more broadly, and even just in the context of this, these five verses, verses 11 to 14, uh, then you will see that this passage does not support the doctrine of prevenient grace. Um, So I wanted to read to you, you know, so we're talking about Arminianism and and Calvinism. I thought I would read to you the uh, from Calvin's commentaries on this particular verse. So uh, Titus 2.11, here is what John Calvin has to say about this verse. Um, You know, if I'm going to say this passage is not or does not support the doctrine of prevenient grace, well, what is the alternative interpretation of it? Well, here is Calvin's interpretation. Uh, Calvin says this, That it is common to all is expressly testified by him on account of the slaves of whom he had spoken. So, uh, sorry, I, I guess I should probably have put this on screen if you're watching the video. I'm sorry that I didn't do that, so I will slow down on the reading. Uh, but Calvin says that it is common to all. So the it here is uh, the the grace of God, which brings salvation. So that it is common to all is expressly testified by Paul on account of the slaves of whom he had spoken. So just a few verses earlier, Paul speaks about slaves uh, in this particular letter. So going on, Calvin says, yet He does not mean individual men, but rather describes individual classes or various ranks of life. And this is not a little emphatic, that the grace of God hath let itself down even to the race of slaves. For, since God does not despise men of the lowest and most degraded condition, it would be highly unreasonable that we should be negligent and slothful to embrace his goodness. 
So the, I would argue, the classic uh, Protestant position on this passage is that God here is uh, the, the grace of God that has appeared and brings salvation to all people is bringing salvation to all types of people, not every single individual person. And I think we can justify that by looking at what the grace accomplishes in these people in this exact passage. So uh, the grace of God has appeared, it says in verse 11, bringing salvation for all people. And what does that grace accomplish in the people? The grace uh, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is what the grace of God does to the people who receive it. So if the grace of God that's being described here is the prevenient grace that Wesley is talking about, well, then you would have to assume that this list here that Paul gives in verses 12 to 14 is happening to all people because prevenient grace by definition is a grace that is given to all people without exception. So let me ask you, do all people or have all people been trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and appearing and the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for his good works? Does that sound like it describes all people? Because that is what the grace does. So the grace of verse 11, which has appeared bringing salvation for all people, the grace trains us to renounce ungodliness. It trains us uh, to renounce worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Clearly, that is not the case for everyone. Clearly, that grace has not been given to everyone. You have to look around the world for uh, a matter of two seconds to understand that that grace has not been given to everyone. So to argue that this passage supports the doctrine of prevenient grace a grace which has supposedly been given to all people is, I would argue, a, a serious mishandling of Scripture. It is not faithful to what this whole passage actually has to say. It only works if you divorce verse 11 from everything that comes after it. But if you keep it in context, and if you look at it uh, and understand what the grace here in verse 11 is accomplishing, as described in verses 12 to 14, then you know that this is not a grace that every single person on earth receives. Because this is describing people who are saved. Not just people who are able to be saved. This is describing people who are saved. And we see that most clearly down here in verse 14. That's why I uh, highlighted it. In verse 14, it says, uh, describing these people and this grace of God, 
it says that Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So what did Jesus do? What did what did the giving of Jesus Christ accomplish? It redeemed and purified a people for himself. A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The the sacrifice, the the atoning work of Jesus Christ is effectual. It redeems and purifies a people for Christ. It does not uh, it does not potentially purify a people. It does not potentially redeem a people. It actually redeems us from lawlessness. It actually purifies us uh, and makes us zealous for good works. This is what the grace of God of verse 11 as uh, exemplified and carried out by Jesus Christ in the atonement accomplishes. And so this this passage cannot possibly, I think, if you read it rightly, if you read it in context, this passage cannot be understood to support the doctrine of prevenient grace. I think it is a, a serious mishandling of the words of God to to use verse 11 in that way. And so, uh, as we sort of wrap up here, this, this whole um, series of episodes on the, the doctrine of prevenient grace, what I want you to hear is this. If you believe in this doctrine, if you believe that God has, has simply made it possible for everyone to believe, but now the, the ball uh, is in their court, if that's what you believe, I challenge you to square that belief with all of Scripture. Don't simply take individual verses and try to pull them from the context and use them to support this, but instead look at all of Scripture, look at look at all of what God's Word has to say, and ask yourself, can I actually square, can I reconcile this doctrine with what, what all of the Bible teaches? And, and my assertion is that you cannot. And so I would encourage you, abandon that false view and accept the reality that is described in Scripture. And the reality is simply this, that God graciously chose a people for himself, for his own possession, as we see in Titus 2.14. God chose his people, and, and many Think of that as unjust. Why would God choose some and reject others? You're asking the wrong question if that's where your mind goes. The question that you ought to ask instead is, why would God choose anyone? We saw in the first three chapters of the book of Romans how all mankind has rebelled against God. The just thing for God to do, the righteous thing, it would be perfectly righteous if God simply burned us all. If God judged us all and exercised his wrath against all mankind without exception, that would be just. You you do not want justice. You want mercy. And so uh, it is the wrong question to ask, why doesn't God save everyone? That is presuming on the grace of God. 
It is the wrong question. Instead, you should ask, why would God save anyone? And when you ask that question, I think that is when you're beginning to understand what the gospel is. That God would would save you? Why? You don't deserve it. I certainly don't. None of us deserve the salvation. None of us can can presume to have earned or presume to to have merited in some way God's righteous uh, love for us. That is, none of us have, have in any sense earned that. But God has chosen to still give it to some. And that is mercy and that is grace. And so don't ask why not everyone Instead, ask why anyone. So that is the end of our episode today. Uh, I hope that that's been helpful for you. I am grateful for uh, everyone who has listened to this. Thank you very much. I hope that you have a great uh, week or weekend whenever you listen to this. And uh, hopefully you'll tune in next time. And hopefully I'll actually have an episode next week. I intend to, I already have a topic idea in mind. Actually, I have like three ideas, so I got to choose which one of the three, but I have ideas. It's going to be great. Uh, thank you for tuning in, reject the doctrine of prevenient grace, and I will see you next time.